be here again. And uh, yeah, I was just here two weeks ago. I love this church. I love all the uh, changes that you've made uh, here. It's so much. I love the chairs. And uh, it's, uh, I find it warmer in here. Like just the atmosphere is warmer with, with, with the, the changes that you guys have done. But let's look at um, our passage today. Uh, I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is a simple question, but I think it's an important question. How would knowing the future shape how you live your life now? Okay, that's, that's the question. How would knowing the future shape how you live today? Would it make any difference if you knew the future? If you knew your future? I want you to keep in mind, because I think this is behind some of what we're going to be looking at today. We're uh, doing a series uh, in the book of Acts, talking about turning the world upside down. And uh, the, the actual passage where that uh, phrase comes from is what we're going to look at today. So turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 to 9, okay? So Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. And it's uh, Paul and Silas, and they're, they're traveling, uh, they're making their, their way through different places. And this takes place in a place called uh, Thessalonica. So Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Paul and Silas, when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he's there for quite a while. He's there for three weeks. And he's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did, as did a great number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, uh, bring them out to the crowd. But when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security, basically when they took bail, or Jason had to pay bail, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is your word. You are a God who reveals. You speaks to your people. And so we're gathered here. We've worshipped you. We've worshipped you in singing. We've worshipped you in our giving. We've worshipped you in our fellowship. And we pray that as an act of worship, we would listen into your word. And so we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive and the courage to respond to what your word says to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Keep your Bibles open. This is the passage we're going to be looking at. We find Paul, who's an early follower of Jesus Christ, coming to a place called Thessalonica, and he tells the people in this place the news. The news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? So he's, he's telling the people this news, and we read in this passage is that this news was received by some people, quite gladly. People were, were quite willing to receive this news. But for other people, they heard this news and they found it disturbing. 
So much so <laughs> that it caused a riot. And people were upset, and, and they were upset because of two main reasons. There were, were two, two claims that, 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 uh, that Paul made. The, the people were saying, what, what Paul is saying is turning our world upside down. And what seemed to bother them were two claims that Paul was making. The first claim is this, is that the Messiah was crucified. Now, right away, to Jews, to many Jews, this made no sense whatsoever. How could God's anointed one, that's what Messiah is, that's what Christ means, right? It means Messiah. How could God's anointed one, how could God's chosen one, how could the king, basically, the king of Israel, how could he be humiliated, stripped of all of his clothing, and nailed and killed on a Roman cross. How could this happen? I mean, God is a God who's supposed to overthrow these Romans. And you're telling me, Paul, that, that God's chosen one was murdered, was executed like a common criminal? Made no sense. Now, if that weren't big, a big enough stretch, you have the second claim that Paul makes. And it's this, is that the same Jesus, the so-called Messiah, did not stay dead but had been resurrected. Now, if the crucifixion was ridiculous, this resurrection, this claim of a resurrection, to many people was almost blasphemous. As I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. But the, 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 the core of the people's complaint, it's interesting, is about Jesus, is about his identity and his mission, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And you have to realize this, is the issue is always going to be about Jesus. Jesus is always going to be the stumbling block. You can talk to your colleagues at work about God, about believing in God, and they're like, ah, that's cool, man. Yeah, I believe in God. That's fine. The moment you say the J word, you're going to be in trouble. The moment you, you start talking specifically about the identity and the mission of this person, Jesus Christ, you're going to run into trouble. It's always, it's always a problem. But Paul says, hey, this is important. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is important. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there is no resurrection, I mean, boy, talk about a people to be pitied. It's going to be Christians because you're following a lie. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, here's the thing, none of us would even be here today, Right? Jesus, from a historical perspective, would go down as one of the, probably wouldn't be known. He, he wouldn't be as well known as some of the other thinkers and writers and prophets of the day. But the reason why we know who Jesus is, the reason why we're gathered here today, is because we believe something, that we believe in a person and an event. We believe in the person of Jesus Christ and the event of his death and resurrection. That's why we're here. And it was this claim of Jesus' death and resurrection that turned people's worlds upside down. Here's the thing. It will continue to turn people's worlds upside down. But you have to admit, this claim that Paul's making is a bit of a stretch. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a pretty large claim. If it's true, it'll mess up our world. It's a game changer. 
It'll change how we think about ourselves. It'll think about, change how we see our world, how we think about our lives. But it's a big claim. And so a lot of people weren't too keen about this claim because it is a big claim. And it ran against the, the two groups of people we come across in, in our passage. It, it, one, it, it ran against the Greeks and how the Greeks would understand the world. It, see, if you're Greek and you're living in the first century, the idea of resurrection is just dumb. Because if you're a Greek, the last thing you'd be interested in is resurrection. For, for the Greeks and for, for, for pagan thinkers, resurrection uh, made no sense because for the Greeks, it was all, if you know a little bit about um, Greek thinking and that, is, is, is for the Greeks, all that mattered was the soul. And, and Greeks, they did have a belief that after you die, something would happen, that you would, uh, your soul might carry on to, to, to some other place, sure. But for the Greeks, the, the goal was the soul to leave the body because the body was, and was, was, was the thing that was in the way for you flying away into heaven. And so the, the Greeks hated the body. And this is, it goes back to some of Plato's thinking, but the Greeks hated them. But they say the body gets in the way. And so for the Greeks, there is no sense of resurrection. Now, this is important. Now, just as, as a bit of an aside, if you come across a lot of atheists or even neo-pagan thinkers today in our world, this is what you'll hear. And I think I, I shared this one time when I was here on a series of classes. What you're going to hear today is you're going to hear this. This is the story. Oh, you Christians, you're so naive. You talk about resurrection, that this Jesus was resurrection, resurrected. But don't you realize that in the first century, there are a lot of different religions that believed in resurrection. And that Christianity simply borrowed these other ideas that were floating around in mystery religions at the time that all believed in resurrection. And what Christianity did is just took some of these ideas and applied it to this Jesus. There's nothing unique about Christianity. It's just borrowing and stealing from other ideas that existed at the time. There's a word to describe that, and that's nonsense. I have another word, but I, have to, I will just say nonsense, right? Um, it is. Be, because no, no Greek thinker would believe in resurrection. One guy, there's a guy, there's a guy named um, Celsus, who's a, a, a Roman uh, philosopher, a Platonic critic of Christ, Christianity. He says the idea of resurrection was, quote, the hope of worms. He, said, he, he asked this question, he says, quote, what sort of human soul would have any further desire for a body that has wrought it? Corpses ought to be thrown away as worse than dung. So, there you go. For the Greeks, they had no interest in resurrection. This idea that somehow our future life, we'd have another body, it'd be like, come on, man, we just got rid of our body. We don't want another body. Okay? Now, here's just an aside. One of the sad parts in history is that Christianity actually borrowed a lot of Greek thinking. And this idea that, oh, I can't wait to escape my body and my soul will be free and float around in heaven has nothing to do with the Bible, but has more to do with Greek thinking. Now, I hate to ruin one of your favorite hymns, but you know the hymn, I'll Fly Away? 
it's more Greek than it is Christian, right? <laughs> um, because we don't, we're not, the, the Christian hope is what? Resurrection. Yeah, it's not some soul flying, a disembodied soul floating on some cloud somewhere with a harp. I mean, come on, that's not what it is. And so it, the idea of resurrection runs against Greek and pagan expect, expectations, but it also kind of ran against Jewish expectations. Now, some of you might be saying, well, hang on, didn't the Jews embrace resurrection? Didn't they like the idea of resurrection? Well, yes and no. Some Jews believed in resurrection, not all of them, the Sadducees didn't. But how resurrection was to take place places difficulties. See, because if you talk to Jewish people in the first century, nobody was expecting a resurrection to happen to a single individual. Why? Because resurrection was supposed to be part of a larger series of events. Now, what were some of those events? Well, the Romans had to be defeated, for one. Secondly, all the nations had to be subjugated to Israel. You had to have all the exiles return. You had to have the restoration of Jerusalem. You had to get rid of corrupt leaders. You had to have a Davidic king. Um, creation was to be renewed. And the, and the big thing is that who was to be resurrected? Everybody! It was supposed to happen at the end of the age. And so when they hear about this person, Jesus, being resurrected, it didn't make sense. Why? Because they look at the window and it's like, Rome's still in charge. You don't have a resurrection amidst an unchanged world in the Jewish mindset. And so for the, both the Jews and the Greeks, the death of Jesus didn't make sense. Why? Because the Jews looked for power, the Greeks looked for wisdom, but Paul's preaching Christ crucified made no sense. Turned the world upside down. Resurrection made no sense to the Jews and the Greeks either. It was blasphemy for the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And so many people we read in our passage rejected the news, okay? But here's the thing. In rejecting Jesus, they miss, and today, in people's rejection of Jesus, we miss the most important event in all of human history. Do you believe that? This is the most important event in all of human history the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is I'm just going to talk about some of the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why does it turn your world upside down? Why ought it turn our worlds upside down? Well, one, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, one, one thing it does is that it vindicates everything Jesus said about himself. Right? You can have a guy like a prophet like Jesus saying, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life, and I'm the light. And he dies. Be like, well, okay, that sounded good. Maybe that was interesting teaching, but it's a bit strange, right? But the, when Jesus is raised from the dead, basically you have to pay attention to everything he said about himself and everything he did, Right? Jesus is saying things about himself and doing things that only God would do and only God would say. Now, again, if he stays dead, he would be like, all right, bit of a wingnut or maybe deluded or something like that. But the moment he's resurrected, it's like, well, okay, now I need to pay attention to this. 
because it gives authority to everything he said. If Jesus is raised to life, here's the other thing. If Jesus is raised to life, it gives meaning and authority to his death. If he's not raised to life, it'd be like, well, yeah, the Romans got to you. Right? This is what happens when you speak against Rome. You're going to die, right? But when you're raised to new life, all of a sudden it puts his death into a different context. It, it, it underlines what Jesus said about his death, that his death was to take our sins, all the things that we've done that we shouldn't have done, he's taking it upon himself and dying the death that we should have died in order that we can be forgiven and be set free. Okay? The resurrection gives meaning to his death. It shows that when Jesus says that the Son of Man came to, de- to, 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 um, to pay a ransom for us all, that that's actually going to happen. Now, if Jesus has been raised to life, every one of us needs to come face to face with this in our lives. I like Thomas. You guys know the story. Like Thomas, after Jesus' resurrection, Thomas comes up to, uh, to Jesus because uh, I mean, he, he's not sure about it. So what does he do? Okay. What does Thomas do? Do you remember what Thomas? I'm going to ask that young fellow. Do you remember what Thomas? What does Thomas do? Touches him, right? Right? Touches him. He said, unless I can put my hands into the holes in your hands and in the side, I'm not going to believe it, right? But he does it. And then Thomas says this amazing words. What does he say? Do you remember? My Lord and my God. And sometimes it's not, it's not like he's saying OMG, like, oh my God, you're, you're alive, right? He's like, you have to realize. <laughs> Sorry, that was... Because something we could just say is, oh my Lord, my God, like a way of saying, wow, you're really alive. Thomas is a monotheistic Jew saying to a man, my Lord and my God. Monotheistic Jews do not say to people, my Lord and my God, unless their worlds have been turned upside down. Something has happened to Thomas. Because what he's saying is, is right from uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And here's the thing. You can reject Jesus, but you can't ignore him. The other thing about the resurrection, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that turns people's worlds upside down is God's big yes to our bodies. Again, Jesus comes back not as Jesus the friendly ghost, Right? Jesus eats food, his resurrected body, and the food does not fall through him and clatter on the floor. Right? He's got a body. He eats. He makes breakfast. Now, it's a strange body. He can get through locked doors. Right? But it's a body. And again, this pushes against what the Greeks thought. But in God's economy, bodies matter. The Bible begins with creates. And it ends with new creation. And that's why as Christians, we don't talk about saving souls because the body actually matters. What we do with our body matters. Paul underlines this all, all through First and Second Corinthians. And the Christian hope is not to go up to heaven and eat Philadelphia cream cheese with wings, right? I, did, I talked about this in the summer. Some of you guys came out. Um... The Christian hope is what? Resurrection. It's very physical. And it's also God's big yes to creation. 
The death and resurrection of Jesus points us uh, to the fact that matter matters to God. Again, uh, Jesus' resurrection is our first glimpse of the world to come. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We see it in Romans. We see it in Revelation 5.10, Revelation 21.2. That, that the, the dwelling of God is with, with humanity. Heaven and God are coming here. The, 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 the future is a new heaven and new earth. Okay? Now, I think one of the things we need to walk away with this morning is this. Is the event of Jesus' death and resurrection also reminds us that death, that the world is no longer ruled by the power of death. By raising Jesus from the dead, God turned the world, in many ways, right side up. And he humiliated the powers that thought they ran the world. And resurrection points to a world that's no longer ruled by the power of death. Now, here's the thing. If you have a world that's no longer ruled by the power of death, you know what you've done? You've taken all the power away from guys like Kim Jong-un, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. Because every tyrant throughout history, what do they have over the population? Power of death. You don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you. Right? Well, what does resurrection do? It removes that threat. What the resurrection does is it says, you know, you know what? You don't have the power of death, actually. It's not yours to control. Because of the cross and resurrection, there's always a way out. The power of death belongs to God. And He is Lord of it all. The other thing is resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus declares that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. I think this is important. Look, look in our passage again, back in verse 6. I took off my glasses, which I shouldn't have done. Back in verse 6, this blur is now clear. Okay, here we go. Um, when they could not find them, these are the Jews are, are, are looking for Paul and Silas. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. Now get this. Look, look at their complaint. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now, what riled up the people? It wasn't the fact that Paul and Silas were preaching that you get to go to heaven after you die. That's not what he's preaching. What disturbed people was the message of resurrection, actually. And why was that? Well, look what the people are saying. They're saying, these guys, it's an interesting complaint. They said, they are defying Caesar's decrees. That's what the Jews are saying. These guys are defying Caesar's decrees. How is the resurrection a defiance of Scripture? It defines the script. Did I say that? Yeah. How is resurrection a defiance of Caesar? That's what I meant to say. How is resurrection a defiance of Caesar? Yeah, well, Caesar is, 
what you would do is, if, if you ever wanted to go shopping at Coquitlam Center in the first century, um, in order to go into Coquitlam Center of the first century, you would have to take a pinch of incense, burn it, and say the words, Kaiser Curious, Caesar is Lord. That's what you'd have to do. And so the, 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 the language that you would use to describe Caesar, in one of a first, uh, here's an inscription, it says, describing Caesar, would be, Divine Augustus, Caesar, son of a God, Lord of land and sea, benefactor and savior of the whole world. So how is the resurrection in defiance of, of, of Caesar? Well, simply this. If you're Caesar, those that Caesar puts to death should have had the good sense to stay dead. But Jesus doesn't stay dead. Jesus is ruled against by a Roman law, is, 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 is put to death like a common criminal. And resurrection says what to Caesar? Got the, yeah, you're not, or you really aren't the Lord. You want to know who the Lord is, right? And that's why it's so political. Jesus doesn't stay dead, and he underlines who really rules this world. And that makes tyrants nervous. And so for many people, why people are so upset is that the message of resurrection was seen as, as treason, right? Now, it's interesting. I used to live uh, in China for many years. And in China, there's, there's different kinds of churches. There's, um, there's underground churches, there's semi-official churches, and then there's official churches. And the official churches are called three self-churches. And three self-churches has, you know, they're, they're kind of government churches. Um, they can do quite a bit in terms of worship and, and, and different things. But there's one aspect of a three-self church, uh, one aspect of preaching that you really can't talk about, or there's one aspect of the gospel that you really can't talk about too much, and what's that? Resurrection. You can't talk about resurrection. Because resurrection has political meaning. If Jesus died and was raised to new life, and if he truly is Lord, then Mao Zedong's not Lord. Right? And it's sad in our passage that the Jews were leading the riots. It's, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, they're the ones who are given the message of the Messiah. And now you have Jews who are, you know, the chosen ones, the chosen people we read about in the Old Testament. And they're trying to stamp out the message of resurrection by saying, these guys are talking about resurrection and, 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 and that is defying Caesar. It's like, what has happened? These are Jews complaining that we need to follow Caesar. Well, somewhere along the line, it seems like they've accommodated with Rome. Maybe they realized that it was better to join Rome rather than try to fight them. They're partnering with Rome. Maybe an allegiance with Rome was financially beneficial. I don't know. But I was thinking about this. Can you imagine... I mean, I was looking at the, what the Jews, you know, their allegiance with, with, with uh, Rome at this stage. Can you imagine Christians today finding their hope in a political figure rather than Jesus? I mean, just unfathomable. Sorry, that was supposed to be a cheeky comment. Um, 
But here's the thing, it wasn't just the Jews. I mean, you read a couple chapters later, you get, um, for the Greeks, you get these silversmiths that are all upset. Why are they upset? Well, Paul, again, is coming to town and he's preaching Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and, and it's bad business if you are, are making idols, right? And so the silversmiths are all upset. They're like, hey, nobody's buying our idols, right? And so they, they have another demonstration, another riot, and they're, you know, they're, they're screaming, great is Artemis, right? Great is... And because Paul, the, the news of the resurrection is bad news for idols makers. And here's the thing, the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ ought to be bad news for Coquitlam Center. It ought to be bad news to consumerism. It is bad news for anything in our life that becomes ultimate other than Jesus. Now let me give you this one last point. What, one of the things that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection does is I think it pushes hard against kind of a worldview that the West were kind of immersed in, and that is the reigning worldview of scientific materialism. Do you know what I mean by that? All I mean by that is we live in a world where if you want to find authority, you ask a scientist, right? What would Bill Nye say? Um, right, that kind of thing. In science, we trust. I told you, uh, maybe I shared this before. It was interesting. I, I came across this article once and in the article it says, science has shown, so right away, hey, it's got to be true. Uh, science has shown that it is beneficial to human beings if they live their lives in such a way that they would treat other human beings in a way that, that as themselves, they would also want to be treated. And people are like, oh, that's... Shy. That's so interesting. Science has shown that. Yeah, yeah. Jesus kind of said that a long time ago. Do unto others as you would have done unto you, right? But because science says, we pay attention. Now, this is not a shot against science at all. Like, I think science is very, very important. What I'm talking about is scientism or science as a worldview. And the resurrection challenges. Now, what, what is scientism as a worldview? Very quickly is that all that matters is matter. What you see is what you get, okay? So don't talk to me about God. All there is in this universe is matter. All there is is stuff. It's a closed system, right? And so God has no place in it. Uh, a guy named Francis Crick, um, geneticist, would say, you know, all you are, your hopes and dreams, all you are is a bunch of firing neurons. That's, that's all you are. You're just the stuff. You're, you're, you're a clump of cells, right? So there's no overarching purpose. There's no overarching meaning. But here's the thing. Resurrection pushes against that. And I want to explain this in, in kind of a sad illustration. Have you ever heard of a guy named Richard Hayes, um, not Richard Hayes, um, Ted Williams? Any baseball fans here? Yeah, Ted Williams, right? Ted Williams played for which team? Yeah, Boston. Boston Red Sox, there we go. Now, he was, he was a really good batter with the Red Sox. 
Now, he died in 2002. And um, after his death, two of his children from, from his third wife produced this kind of wrinkled up oil-stained paper which they presented was actually Ted Williams' last will and testament. And on, in, in the will, it laid out that Ted Williams and his children, or at least some of his children, would, did not want to be buried after they died. What they wanted was to have their bodies frozen through the process of cryonics in the hope that someday science will be advanced enough to bring them back to life. So this is what the scrap piece of paper said. It says, you know, um, Ted Williams and his kids agree to be put into biostasis after we die. This is what we want. We want to be able to be together in the future, even if it's only a chance. After his death, the son had uh, Ted Williams' body flown to a, a lab in Scottsdale, Arizona, where Ted Williams' body was hung upside down in a steel tank full of liquid nitrogen at minus 325 degrees. And, and the son had talked about how Ted Williams had, had come to put his belief in the progress of scientific knowledge that he believed that one day, one day, science would even conquer death. I think about the chief engineer of Google. Um, he... Uh, he takes this um, intense vitamin therapy and anti-aging therapy so that he could be healthy enough when the technology comes so that he could take his brain, put it in a computer, and live forever. Okay. Ooh, chief engineer at Google, right? Now, uh, one guy, Richard Hayes, New Testament guy, he comments about this whole thing the whole thing with Ted Williams. He says, in this pathetic little vignette, we see the natural human aversion to death, a raging against the dying of the light, fused together with a ridiculous human pride that would rather place trust in a hypothetical future of science than in what God has already done and promised. To believe in a non-existent science that might someday resuscitate human corpses allow the world to, uh, allows the world to continue as it is, frozen solid in the assumption that we are our own masters. But to believe that God has already broken the power of death, well, that would turn people's worlds upside down. Okay? Eh? Resurrection is bad news for those who think that they're in control of their lives. So what do, you, what do we do with this passage? What do we walk away with? Well, I think this. I mean, if, if through the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if this really happened, which we believe it did, there's good evidence to show it did, well, it still is in the business of turning people's lives upside down turned my life upside down when I came to that point where I just said where I believed it was true living in a hotel room in, in Shanghai all oh, over 25 years ago when I came to that point 
It turned my life upside down. This news still challenges the status quo. It comforts the afflicted, but also afflicts the comfortable. The news of Jesus' death and resurrection gives us life. And here's a question. Or here's, here's, yeah, I think it's a big question. If Jesus has come to give you life, fullness of life, beginning now and extending into eternity, when people meet you, do they walk away more alive or more dead? Does that life so infuse how you live? Do people walk away after encountering you at work or at home or at school? Do they walk away more alive? Good, good. And I think our invitation this morning is this, that you can experience the resurrected life that Jesus is offering you by worshiping the resurrected king. I've said this before, but resurrection is something you can reject because we have free will, but you can't ignore it. And so if you're in that place today, you can't ignore it. Because of the resurrection of life of of Jesus Christ, you have a choice. You're either going to bow your knee and say to Jesus, your will be done. My life is in you because my life will only make sense when it's connected to you because you have shown yourself to be the author of life. Or you can shake your fist. But there are consequences. One is a consequence of life and one is a consequence of death. So I don't know where you're all at this morning. But my invitation, the invitation from from Scripture is to give your life to the one who says, I am the life. Now, the life he offers you is a fullness of life. It's not an easy life. But it's a life that's going to be turned upside down. It's a life where you become fully human. And it's a life where you become the person that you were actually created and redeemed to be. And so if you haven't received that life, receive it this morning. Okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to close, right? Sure. Okay. (laughs) Just making sure. All right. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to close. Um, But let's pray. I think we need to pray. Now pray. We're going to be talking to the very Jesus that we've been talking about. So let's pray. Jesus, you've been part of our conversation right from the get-go. You're much more present, more active than we realize. And you are the truth, the life, and the way. You died and rose to new life. You defeated death. And now you have your hand open and you invite all those who desire life to come to you. In you we have forgiveness of sins. In you we are set free. In you we become fully human. The people that you are wanting us to be. And so, Lord, I don't know where everybody's at this morning, but if there's someone who's, you've just been nudging them, nudging them, nudging them throughout, throughout hearing your word, Lord, I pray that they would reach out and uh, respond to you and that you would set them free, that they would say, Jesus, I come to you. I give my life to you. Set me free. Make me fully alive.
And as a people, Lord, in Coquitlam, as your people, we pray that we would be so full of your life that when people encounter us, they would walk away knowing of the life that is in Jesus. That's our desire. We want to be a life-filled people. And I pray for Hillside. It would be a life-filled community and a light in this community. So that's our desire. We lay this before you. Turn our worlds. Continue to turn our worlds upside down. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me leave you with uh, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ that he says to Martha back in John chapter 11. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked us this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Amen. Go in his grace.